This is a Media Lab podcast. Is that another ship that's over there? Are they are they trying to race us? We're getting closer to the Earth. Yeah, we're yeah. super close. How how are we seeing another ship this late in the game? Well, we were out pretty far. Is that the story we're telling people? <laughs> we were out pretty far. We are, so now we are. we're nearer. There's likely to be a space station like we, nearby. Yeah, we are going we are going to be at Earth next week. Like we're going to be arriving at Earth oh, by next week. So, finally. Yeah. yeah. It'd be nice to get a break. Do you want to like uh, communicate with them that we want to race them and then never race them? It would be important for us to look them in the eye and then be smug because, you know, we don't need to prove anything unless there's a hitchhiker involved. There's always a hitchhiker involved. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone. Especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm Dave. And I'm The Machine. A podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the film... Tulane Blacktop. Dave, in, you know, last week we were talking about Vanishing Point, kind of a, a road movie, a race movie. We've talked about Duel already here this season. This is a third kind of car movie. So I want to know specifically your history with Route 66. Nothing. There's a song. Get <laughs> your kicks on never the Route 66, it. Dave. Yeah. I've never driven on it. I don't care. It means you fuck a lot. That's what that means. <laughs> and I think it's, is it in Nevada? I don't know. Well, I don't care. Because my dad and I were going to drive Route 66, we did have it plotted out. It actually, the Route 66 goes from Chicago to LA. Oh, all the way. So okay. They're going through six different states. I can't remember. There are a lot of them. There's a lot so. of them. Have you ever been able, I once was able to name all 51. I don't even know how many there are. There's 50. Um, I'm uh, apparently a loser. <laughs> 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 well, you didn't have to figure out how to name the states for me to tell you that, Dave. Um, wow. We have been hanging a lot together in this ship. Even I'm getting weirded out. I guess I bring this up a lot. There's something romantic that I have, this romantic feeling I have about like hitting the open road and just like driving and seeing the countryside and, and all that stuff. Oh, you're going to like this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll see. We'll, we'll find out. Like there's just uh, something about that being behind the wheel and 
stuff in diners. <laughs> I don't Keep know. Keep going, yeah. <laughs> tell me tell me more about this North American fantasy. So you, you stop hey, well, at the diner, I think it is. You, you shit in a box in the back. Yeah. Well, no, maybe not that far. <laughs> I, I I do think it is a very much a North American thing because we have so much space here. And so cars are kind of yes. required if you're going to travel super long distances that way. Even close distances. I don't know. What, what do you dream about walking across Toronto? What, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> I, I dream about just lying down and taking naps and not being bothered. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know anything about the Cannonball Run? The movie with Burt Reynolds in it? It is was turned into that, but there is actually a thing called the Cannonball Run. Okay. Which uh, we'll find out later. We'll, we'll get into this probably at the end of the episode. But this movie directly inspired the creator of the Cannonball Run. So the, the idea is to get uh, to from New York to L.A. in the quickest time possible. Uh, mm. And so you can do it in any way you want to. Of course, you have to use a car or some people use a bicycle, I guess. But it's you're going from New York to L.A. in the fastest way possible i will say this pre 2020 i don't have it in front of me but it was like something like uh 30 hours or something like that was like the top time the record would. now okay. people are going fast That's pretty fast in certain spots yeah. like you're kidding like almost 160 miles an hour in some of the stretches like you were going it's pretty fast yeah however the record was beat four different times during covid because no one was on the roads <laughs> ah. so it kind of got gotten but so i think it's down to 25 hours or something like that is like the oh wow the the fastest time which is like, just think about that there's just over a day's worth of driving from new york to la yeah. you're just yeah. you're motoring across the united states i feel like calgary to toronto non-race time on google is 35 hours mm-hmm. around there that's keeping so the, the time, coast speed coast. limit and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like uh, just on the regular app. Mm-hmm. So to go coast to coast in that time is uh, ridiculous. Yeah. Dangerous, you might eh. even say. Eh, yeah, I've been on American highways. They're, they're like Canadian highways. They're pretty boring and straight. They are, but okay. I don't know if this is a West Coast thing because I know there is huge differences where you are in the United States. I, I'm actually most familiar with West Coast driving. Uh, so like Washington oh, State, Oregon, California, I've driven yeah, in all of those states. More. Sure. They really, really, really utilize the carpool lane, which is not mm. really something I see a lot in Canada. Maybe they do in Toronto. I don't know. But I've never yeah. really seen a carpool lane here in Canada. And I remember traveling with a friend and being like, feeling like we were cheating by just being two people in yeah, a car yeah. and just like plowing past awesome. so many people that were stopped mm-hmm. dead on on the freeways, like we give everybody the finger, <laughs> laughing at them in their face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, are we are we doing this right? This doesn't feel like we should be able to be in this lane. Oh, it's, and like, it's like you, having the Nexus card. But then, right? you, then well, it is because you pass. It's like, oh no, it's one person in every single one of these cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Toronto's same. I can't remember when they added that in early two thousands. Anyways, uh, now they're busy. Plus. When you're in the urban areas, people cheat, so they're just in there, yeah, 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 gambling the ticket. But yeah, it's great. There's also a toll highway in Toronto, yeah. Um, so if you have a corporate you know, entity that's paying for it, it's fucking awesome. You can fly on that thing. Otherwise, it's too expensive. Oh, I, I did the same thing um, when I used to work for the Apple Corporation. Are you familiar with them, Dave? The Apple Corporation. Uh, so they they have groves around the uh, mm-hmm. United States. Yeah, of, uh, everything's uh, gro- organic. Groves of drones. I was driving in Texas. And I had a mm. rental car where I could use the toll highways. It was just like little 
patch thing was there and it would just like charge my credit card it was great (laughs) i got got around so quickly around places because they didn't have to use the other roads yeah probably less uh chance of gun gun Mm. violence too when you're on the toll highway texas is also the place (laughs) it sounds like i'm making this up but it was actually one of the first places i used uber i was at the hotel and i was like really far away from like downtown austin so like i want to go check out some of the pubs and stuff that are down there and so uber comes and like this is cool i get in the back and we're driving and they're making conversation I'm like so like i haven't seen much for like buses or anything here and it, it, the, the 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 questioning tone is like buses like they just had no concept of what i was talking about it's like oh all right that's a well they don't they don't have that kind of infrastructure in I austin i guess not right? like I, there has to be some sort of bus line there but there was like why would you use a bus to get to anywhere here in austin just one bus yeah. It's the old night bus. I complain a lot about Calgary's transit, oh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it'd be weird to go into a city where they just don't care because yeah. everybody's supposed to have a car anyway. So. Yeah. Ah. Well, there we go. Yeah. Uh, anything with this movie? Does this have any nickname recognition? Anything no. like that? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, the I also, like it's only been very recent that I ever even heard about this movie. Maybe, I don't know, under a year ago, I think I heard about Tulane Blacktop for the first time. Mostly, like, once again, because I'm on my blogs, I'm on my Twitters, I'm interacting with people in film Twitter, and it seemed like... Do people read blogs? Is that a thing? I, I do. Seems like a lot of energy. <laughs> I, yeah. I do. Uh, because it was talking about, like, the 50th anniversary of some movies that were coming out from 1971. I kept seeing this movie pop up. It's like, it's one of these under-the-radar classics, right, that people don't talk about very much, but was super influential, and it's actually super good, and people should uh, talk about it more... And so I looked into it and like, oh, this is weird. Like, this is, why have I never heard about this movie before? I feel like this is a byline for 1971 mm-hmm. where everybody's like, because it's 50 years yeah. and everybody's starting to get this like nostalgia. Like, oh, these movies are actually really good. Yeah, this yeah. is a forgotten gem. No, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> oh, we'll find out. We don't know. We don't know. We haven't, we haven't watched this movie yet here, Dave. Oh, I'm, I'm painting I, I will just, 71 in whole. I will also whole. say, Dave, yeah. like you don't even like... <laughs> The actual good things. So you liking even anything middle of the road is like a wish too far, probably. I live in the future, man. I don't live in the past. I don't got time. There's so much content that we've got to watch now. The only good movies that were made were past the year 2000. Those are the only time good movies were made. That's David Young said that. That's a direct quote. You know what? Uh, we did pretty well in 1999. Yeah, but we like overrated stuff too. Anyways, that's that's a wow. That's a debate for wow. a, another day. Let's do this, Dave. Then let's get into our roadsters. We're gonna peel some roadsters. rubber. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that what they say? Rose. <laughs> that sounds like a sex euphemism, but that's okay. Let's keep going. We're gonna do some two lane blacktop action. So we're gonna go watch that movie. But before before that, we're gonna <laughs> thank some sponsors, and then when we come back, we're gonna actually be talking about two lane blacktop. You think if they made a sequel, they'd call it Four Lane Blacktop? I don't know. What about bike lanes? How come, how come nobody's talking about bike lanes, Kyle? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When, will, when will we have the great American film of people peddling across America? Actually, there probably is one already. How yeah, about probably. Scramble Intersections? That'd make a good movie, <laughs> right? Like a thriller. Like, when do you go? When do you, All they, the lights are green. All the lights yeah. are green. They, they made an entire movie about a guy in a phone booth, Dave. That's so I'm true. Sure they couldn't if make it Carl, work. I mean... If he had if he had done that movie in Irish, mm-hmm. he would have been able to emote, and it might have been good. But he can't do American accents. Here's another little sidetrack before we get to the uh, to the ad <laughs> copy this episode. I just watched um, 
the French Dispatch, the Wes oh, Anderson yeah. movie. Okay. And it's convinced me that I wish Timothy Chalamet would stop trying to be a lead actor. Mm. Uh, and just be a character actor. And be a character actor because I like seeing him do weird, wacky things. It's like the okay, Jake Gyllenhaal thing. Let's not thing. make this into No, it's, a, it's like the yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal thing. They tried to make him like the next big thing for so he's, long. Yeah, it's he's like, too creepy. You're good being just a creepo. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that's what you excel at. Just be a creep. Yeah, he's too creepy. Timothy, be a creep. That's what you that's what you're good at. He kinda is. <laughs> <laughs> not with that hair, Dave. Not with those eyes. <laughs> it's you just a fall way. into them. Jesus Christ. Aren't we supposed to be talking about our sponsors and not about, you know, you? Kyle and Dave versus the machine is brought to you by Timothy Chalamet's cheekbones. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. And Dave, as luck would have it, we're brought to you. That feels weird when I'm talking just to you. I know. Well, we are brought to them because we're this acting. week uh-huh. by the Alberta Podcast Network. So let's go and listen to one of our other great shows, a different one than from a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, why would we listen Mm -hmm. to the same one? The podcast you're listening to is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. My name is Kyle, and I'm the host of Putting It Together. From a very early age, I've been obsessed with musical theater. And in particular, I've adored the music of composer Stephen Sondheim. So I decided to create a podcast where I invite on a new guest each week and go through each one of his productions, show by show and song by song. You'll learn about theater history, you'll laugh, maybe cry, but always you'll be swept up in the music. It's called Putting It Together and it's available anywhere you get podcasts. That was a great different uh, program. Yeah, I'm interested in that one. Yeah. Uh, Specifically, episode 64 mm. <laughs> maybe it's one of my shows that i put on there because i am nothing if not aggrandizing uh, <laughs> yeah narcissistic is what i was going to say but who knows which one i have put into 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 that spot here you uh, do have many D- D- dave what do you have for me I, I i'm having trouble reading it but i think i'm supposed to talk to us us you everyone everyone the royal we we capital w uh about park power park power our episode is brought to you by park power your Mm -hmm. friendly local utilities provider in alberta offering internet electricity natural gas they've got low rate deep inhale offering internet electricity and natural gas with low rates awesome service and profit sharing with local charities in alberta you get to choose who to buy your internet electricity and natural gas from that's nice of them right it's (laughs) if there's one saving grace about our shitty province write your letters to dave yun at (laughs) write your letters to jason kenny park power has a low overhead which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates reach out for a no obligations comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca if you decide to switch it's easy kyle it's easy it's really just the change to your billing and you wow. can feel good, Kyle, for once. In <laughs> <laughs> my sad, depressing life. <laughs> Knowing you are helping to give back to our communities with your utility bills. Learn more at parkpower.ca. That feels nice. It is feel nice. And we should say, because we won't say it in the episode uh, for many different reasons, but uh, uh, Merry Christmas to those who celebrate. Because tomorrow is Christmas when this episode uh, yes. is live. Uh, right. And good. if you celebrate Hanukkah, Ramadan... 
Kwanzaa. I don't know all the other holidays that are going around here at yeah, the same yeah. time, but yeah. uh, Christmas vacation. Merry holidays. Yeah, good good job, everyone. And uh, we did it. <laughs> good job for being born into that religion, whatever that one happens to be. Whatever yours is, great. <laughs> you, you did it. <laughs> right. Just yep. offend everyone or make everyone happy. It's a thin line. All right, Dave, we, we took a journey. We uh, were on the open roads. Got to see James Taylor's flowing hair back in 1971. He did have nice hair. Yeah, I'll give him that. I already know what you're going to say based on your scrunched <laughs> up face. So. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me, Dave. What do you mean? Tell me, Dave, what did you think about Tulane Blacktop? I don't know. It was, uh, it was, it was fine. I, you know, after finishing this film, because this is the last of our current foray into 1971. How do you know that? I think that uh, this, uh, what movie did we just Vanishing watch? Vanishing Point. Last Picture Show, mm -hmm. Summer of 42. These are all movies that deal with what you brought up at the beginning of the, this episode, this uh, North American idealism, which I... It doesn't speak to me, man. Like, but you live in North America. What are you talking about? I know, but I don't have this generational perspective that, I mean, I'll call it like white people in North America have mm -hmm. this fascination with the open road and prairies and like, look how much space we have. I need a, I need a yard, man. I need to do some fucking yard work. I need to build <laughs> my house with my fucking hands for me to feel like I fucking live my life. I hate all that. I, I don't know why. I just, and it's not like I have Asian sensibilities. I don't you know, miss, I never lived in Asia. So I, I live in a cave in a little bubble. And so when I am reading these stories about, so this movie is really just about a bunch of kids who aimlessly roam, end of story, yeah, right? No, I and agree. I, I don't know, it's not, it's not a bad film. And I can understand when I read some of these reviews that American people want to reappraise this thing. It's the MAGA people, Kyle. It's the people who think, think that 1971 was a better time. Honestly, you can't do this shit anymore. How many people pick up random hitchhikers true. anymore? True, true, true. Right? We, we live in a time of paranoia, but people find it romantic that this uh, psychopath can <laughs> have these like interactions with random strangers and build a story of America. Yeah, I think right? there's two things. I think you're right of, to call it like a North American fascination of hitting the open road. I also think the biggest roadblock for both of us, although you more so, is that sensibility of people who are teenagers in their early 20s to mid 20s in the 70s specifically, probably being born in the 50s, growing up in the 60s. So my parents' generation specifically, and that feeling of being disaffected. I don't know, like that, just that feeling of wanting to drop out. Burnt out. Like this, that whole, I guess it's the whole hippie ideal movement, which I would feel like these people are kind of a part of. It's, it's really interesting because I just watched the Apple TV Plus documentary on the Velvet Underground, who were very much anti-hippie. Like, they, they say straight up, we mm -hmm. fucking hated the hippies, hated them. And I'm kind of aligned with their sensibilities, where I don't really jive with their you outlook turkey. on life. And so that's been my hardest thing to kind of get into when some of those movies lean that way. It's like, oh, whatever. We're just like, open love, man. And like, we're, we're just going to have this Peace, commune man. and we're going to do this thing and whatever. My three kids are named after different flowers, man. Right. So yeah. when I read the reviews from this movie specifically and people are kind of like the way that they look 
without feeling or the whatever the the way that uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're disaffected, they're disaffected yeah. in the way that they don't react to anything. I'm like, I guess, but it's still not very interesting to watch. Uh, it's called bad acting <laughs> is what it is. Right, right, right. right. Uh, honestly, it, to think that two young musicians are intentionally acting well right. as disaffected youth is bullshit. They just didn't know what they were doing. You could say, oh, the director tapped into that and that's bullshit too because none of them actually made anything good after this. You know, it's not like these people all appeared in films or this director made anything noteworthy after this. So. Right, right. I will, I, will, I will say that um, Warren Oates specifically, the... Sure. Is an actual actor. <laughs> G2. Yeah. yeah. Is, but he's actually acting. But that's what he's saying. Like every time he's on screen for me in this movie, he's like, oh, okay, here we go. Here's an actual actor who's doing yeah. stuff and is actually like emoting yeah. and like giving some backstory. And it's like interesting. And then we have to go back to James Taylor, who's looking blankly out a window. I'm like, I don't, I don't really care about this. Scuffing his lines. And yeah, he looks angry at the end. Who cares? Sometimes you see fire and sometimes you see rain. This is kind of a, a, of a wrap up because I know... We might get letters for this, for this reappraisal of this movie that's apparently the, one of the top Whatever. 10 best from got 1971. People get upset. The, what I actually find the most frustrating is that I think there is actually a good movie inside of this that is just not being allowed to come out because of the decision of who they decided to cast and how they, and we'll find this out in a bit, how they kind of reworked the script a little bit as they were as they were making this. I can only really talk about this movie in comparison to the other two road movies we had, which I would say like Duel is your populist, like action adventure thriller, thriller thing. Right. Isn't really trying to be anything more than that. <laughs> this is just a big truck chasing a little car. That's what this movie is. Then you have, I liked it. And I liked it. I did. Um, and then we have Vanishing Point. I liked You Didn't, which is kind of your more cerebral thing where it's I am a guy. I am racing down here and there's all these action sequences going around it but there's also like this kind of philosophical and cultural point that is trying to be made within that and i have some issues with how that movie ends and some of the other decisions it has but for the most part i was kind of in it and was ripped by it this movie is very much like the completely the opposite of duel in that like it is like pretty slow moving is really introspective is sort of commenting on the time period and, and and trying to use that as i don't know a commentary on on the on the times of 1971 and as you've probably heard in my voice already i was honestly pretty disengaged for most of this movie every time i thought like oh, okay here's where it's gonna kick into the next gear sorry for the pun but don't be yeah, might be the only interesting thing you say about this. But movie. you know, like, so there's these the, the two characters, and and finally the girl shows up. And like, okay, they're we're gonna go into this relationship, and we're gonna learn something or whatever. That doesn't really happen. Okay, so they meet this guy in the road, and they say we're gonna race to New York City, and then whoever wins gets the other person's pink slips. So I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Okay, now we're getting into like the vanishing point where there's gonna be a race. It's gonna be cool. That never really happens. All right, and then we finally, and then finally we pick up some hitchhikers. And it's like, oh, okay, this is where it turns, and we're gonna see some like nothing happens. And I'm like, okay, well, like, well, when when is something actually gonna do it? And then like the final, sorry to spoil this movie, where the film kind of just burns up in the projector, and we just end without there being any resolution. I'm like, wow, okay, so this feels like a real big old waste of my time for the most part. I do like. Warren Oates quite a bit. When I said I like him, I like I liked him a lot. I wish the whole movie was just him <laughs> and not have anything to do with any of the other people and kind of just see how much of him of his persona is lying and is or is not. 
But by and large, I really didn't like this movie very much, <laughs> to, be, to be perfectly blind. We'll see how the numerical alignment ends up, but I agree with you entirely. I, th- I mean, there is, I can understand, again, that film nerds want to look at this as, uh, you know, you brought up uh, Duel as this action thriller, and then, you know, we joked the vanishing point was the Billy Jack of uh, road civil issues. And this is one of these ones where people would be like, oh, this is the lived-in experience. It's not they they don't need to intentionally say anything because these people are in it. No, it's boring. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I just don't get it. But all the points you brought up, I I think it's just, yeah, it's just boring. It's just boring, Kyle. What is the point of a movie like this? Well, here's the thing. Like, this is the biggest thing I've been struggling with. I mean, we just watched the movie, but I mean, (laughs) in the minute sense, what I've been struggling with is like, I actually tend to really try not to use the word you just used, which is boring for a movie for a vast number of reasons, because it's like, I do like other movies that are super slow paced. So what is it about this movie that isn't? Those are two different things. Okay. Fair fair enough. Boring and slow moving are not the same thing. True enough. Boring is my opinion that I don't want to watch it and I've immediately forgotten half the scenes in this film. (laughs) Right. No, I agree. Like, I I don't think there's much here that is going to, that piqued my interest or is going to make me want to go and rewatch this movie ever. But I don't know, like other people have said the same thing about Drive, for instance, like a, I don't know, movie that came out 10 years ago, I think now at this point, or just over 10 years ago. There's actually flashes of action in that movie, but for by no, large, it's just drive, yeah. people looking and talking to each other or i mean there's even like it's clearly yeah. a, a movie that's older how about uh, 12 angry men or something like that right where it's, you're just watching people debate about a case in a jury room no that's not boring you're not just watching i know anything. but I mean, I've, that I've, I've seen that criticism leveled at it before one of the greatest movies ever made yeah. i would like to see if someone who said that likes this movie a i wouldn't be surprised and b they can go fuck themselves because <laughs> uh their opinion is useless this it's 12 angry men is i mean i mean you know we're not gonna mm-hmm. argue about this but that is acting and character drama at its finest yeah and that anybody could look at that and consider that empty just shows how empty they are. And anyone who looks at this and thinks that there's something that speaks to them, I mean, you know, fine. I, I'm not going to call you an idiot for liking a movie, but you're an idiot because there's nothing <laughs> to like in this movie. I, I don't know. Well, I, I, again, this is the, the thing. It's like I, if, if there's something that speaks deeply to you from watching this, like I can't say anything against that. If it, if it moves you, it moves sure. you, right? There's different films that... People trash them like, oh, actually, that's a very deeply moving thing for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that movie is a goofy movie is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't mind that. If, there, if honestly, like you were around that time, you saw this at a young age and it totally spoke to you and it encapsulated all the stuff that you were feeling at the time. I can't really argue against that. All I can say is from a 2021 context, coming at this fresh, having seen 50 other years of films after it and a bunch of years of film beforehand. Yeah, I just am not grabbed at all by anything that really happens in this. To use, again, that 12 Angry Men example, I think it comes down to the main actors. James Taylor sang some great songs. I don't want to take that away from him. But as an actor, he does not have like a Henry Fonda (laughs) nature to him to be able to emote and give me something that's like bubbling under the under the hood you look you look tired and upset to be on a to be filming a movie is really what it looks like uh, let me ask you this question what is the difference between this and straight story which you like mm-hmm. i mean they're essentially the same tone you know it's just i, I would agree just with that. life at life speed same right? tone 
But I think where the straight story excels is that there is still a plot that is happening to it. And I don't need a plot. Is there? I don't yeah. I don't need a plot necessarily. Like I keep coming back to that. Like if I'm jiving with like the characters, I can I can be taken. But his destination is I'm trying to get to my brother, I'm trying to make amends, and he actually gets to his brother. And we see the beginning of him making amends. I don't really know what these people are trying to do. They're essentially trying to get somewhere, but they never really go there. And then they make this thing, we're going to yeah, race. And they're then, riding or dying. And then they never really race. And then, yeah, it, it keeps going on. And then again, it just ends. Like, there's even no resolution to where they're going to. I guess I needed something a little bit more to be added in to feel like I was being moved. It's okay if they're going to change their uh, opinion about where they want to go to or if their entire life orientation changes, but they don't get any of that from, from this movie. Yeah. I suspect defenders of this film will say that's the point right. that at the end there it's ultimate aimlessness and there's no hope for the youth of America, which turns out is probably true, but I don't know. It's uh, it's just not packaged in a way that, I mean, again, to spoil the very end of this episode, it's not packaged in a way that I believe. And I think you're the same uh, holds any weight anymore. Right. And maybe uh, you, if you watch this or get your your dad or your mom watch this, maybe they'll really key I have no idea. It depends on what they experienced in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but it just feels dull, a, a lost time almost. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a weird time capsule where maybe half of the journal at the end got uh, degraded and we never see what happened just before they buried the fucking thing. Yeah. And some people are like, oh, but that's such a romantic idea. And I'm like, I just want to know how it ends, man. Death. Everything ends in death. Like Vanishing Point is, is another comparison here again. As much as I don't like how that movie ends, I think it's a little bit of a cheap ending. At the very least, it's a it's a decision. <laughs> They're making a choice to be like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna have them just ram into these two bulldozers and explode. It doesn't feel like oh, we're just gonna cut to black because we don't have any way to to wrap this up. At least the, that driver has a chance to like talk to other people and communicate his worldview, and to either be challenged or not. And there's there's none of that that really gets spoken about in this movie. So all we're left with is like reaction shots and like looking out the window pensively and you know it's interesting i I think because i forgot about vanishing point almost immediately after we hit stop on the on the last recording they are immediately and should be compared to each other Mm -hmm. or shouldn't they i mean they're basically the same movie told in different tones yes i I mean you know yeah vanishing point he does meet all kinds of weird people that represent different aspects of american life and in the end there's no uh, resolution. We we don't understand. Even if he blows up, we don't understand any of it. And it's the same thing. We have a slightly different characters, but they're crawling across America and meeting weird characters that represent different aspects of what this director has seen about American life. And in the end, we also get no resolution. I, I think if we were more intentional about this, we should have just done a shot by shot comparison of the two most boring yeah. films we've watched this film. <laughs> uh, but then I would have slept. Well, there there are some other things I want to bring up here, but uh, let's do some backstory. Two Lane Blacktop came out on July 7th, 1971. It is rated 7.2 on IMDb. It has an 89 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 40 critics, it has a 93%. And from 5,000 plus users, it has an 82%. It's available on DVD or Blu-ray, uh, but is not available to stream anywhere. So you cannot actually go and watch this unless you buy the DVD or Blu-ray copy. Do you think we could get some stats on how many of these critics are white, male, and cisgendered? Cis- well, 
not to make everything political, Dave, but someone actually did do, what movie was it? There was a breakdown that someone just did about a movie that was getting kind of pan is like, well, most of it is because it's, yeah, it's mostly white male critics. And if you took them out of the equation, it like raised the average up like 30%. So, I mean, this movie getting, I can't remember the numbers you read out, but I can just imagine 40 critics. They're probably all white male and in their sixties because uh, who else? Would like this piece of shit. Gonna get off the soapbox. Its budget was eight hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. By the way, that is half of what Vanishing Point had. Basically, didn't have to hire a bulldozer or blow up a car. Don't know what it actually made. Its plot description, though, is. While drag racing through the American Southwest in a Chevy 150, a driver and his oh, mechanic specific. cross paths with an Lorraine hitchhiker and the inexperienced tall tail spinning driver of a GTO. That's the other thing about American culture is they're so obsessed with cars. Sure. Right? Because they are part of the car boom. You're a car guy. That in if uh, the synopsis, including the models of these vehicles, tells you everything you need to know about why people like this movie. The Jay Leno's of the world will love this, right? <laughs> this is this is probably Jay Leno's favorite movie. I would not be probably. surprised. I mentioned this last week. I admitted to this last week because I am car blind. Yeah, those words mean nothing to me. A Chevy 150, a GTO. I'm like, I have no picture in my head what that even means or what that looks like. Uh, but it's my fault. So this stars James mm. Taylor as the driver, Warren Oates as the GTO, Lori Bird as the girl, and Dennis Wilson as the mechanic. We're stupid and uh, didn't realize that these were like famous musicians. Well, I knew who James Taylor was. I know it was like one song that he right. sang. I did not really know who Dennis Wilson was, to be perfectly honest. Did not see him, know him by was, look. Let's put it that way. I was watching this film and I thought, maybe this is Scott Kahn's dad. <laughs> <laughs> these people all have, well, with the exception of the actor, Warren Oates, they all have uh, very tragic stories. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Where do you want to start? Uh, James Taylor. So uh, for D- James Taylor and Dennis Wilson, I skipped most of the music stuff, even though that's how you define both of them, mm-hmm. because uh, you know it's not a music podcast. But James Taylor, particularly for people like we're talking about in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, people love James Taylor mm-hmm. apparently. But he's folk folk music, rock, yeah. so I I don't. Yeah, rock, lowercase r, folk pop. At any rate, <laughs> he's considered you know one of the greatest selling American artists, like maybe of all time or something like that. He's got six Grammys. Who cares? The most important thing for this movie at this time is apparently he's a huge heroin addict Mm. and it derailed his career so many times. And this is actually the the year he broke out is the year he did this film. And so he's already been... he comes from a very wealthy family, so when he bottoms out, he he checks himself into rehab centers right. and people are funding his recoveries and all this stuff. Yeah, and he's like vacationing here to recover, but he got signed on to Apple Records, speaking of Apple, mm-hmm. so he basically was produced by the Beatles and, you know, there's a lot of things that build up his career, but I think this film comes out- Was he a model as well or had he already released records before? Now? Actually, I, I didn't see the model part. It was just all music that I read. He could have been. I don't know. He looks like a 70s model. In 1969, he had another bottom out and he's building these singles and 70s, his first single that hits the top three. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Uh, I think it won a Grammy even or nominated. And 71 is his- uh, first uh, solo album that mm. blows up and he's also in this film he half the reason why he looks the way he does as far as emoting you know he's not in a good place mentally uh, mentally or emotionally yeah he's always apparently had this really bad yo-yo with uh, opiates mm. that's a tough addiction 
to live with, but he's actually still alive. Yes. Yeah, that's, so that's, you know, he found recovery with his second wife in the 80s, but he was originally married to Carrie, uh, Carly Simon, which yes. is interesting. They had a couple of kids. Is, is, is he so fain? Uh, is that why? Is, I wonder if is she write that song. Well, that's oh. that's always been the mystery of who she's actually singing about in that song. So he's one Probably of the options, guy. and there's a bunch of other yeah. people that could yeah. be about. At any rate, um, so that's. I mean, it was only interesting that uh, I didn't know much about his drug history. Mm-hmm. I just. I think I saw him in. Was he in the Steve Jobs movie performing for Apple? Oh, Am I wrong could, about that? I don't know. Could be. <laughs> I know he was yeah. in Funny People, and you brought up Funny People, and uh, so I know he's supposed to be a big deal, but I don't really listen to his music. I only. I literally only. Only know the one song that he sings, like I See Fire, I See Rain, which got played for some reason. Yeah. I feel like there was a, a run of 90s movies where that played, like in three or four sure. of them or something like that. And it's like, oh, yeah. Whoever grows up with the music ends up putting it in their yeah. films, right? He's got six Grammys, so I'm sure there's lots of songs that we don't realize are James Taylor songs. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Dolly Parton. There's so many covers and music actually comes from her brain, but I didn't know until someone points it out. So good for him. Yeah, I don't, I don't know much about Warren Oates is in a bunch of Sam Peckinpah movies. I know that. Yeah. He's in The Wild Bunch and stuff, I think. And uh, Butch, not Butch, what's the other one? Pat, Pat Garrett and the Billy the Kid yeah. or something. Yeah. The only thing that was interesting, I mean, he's got, uh, I think he's not a formally trained actor, but he he's good and he's got this natural talent. And uh, there's some revisionist history where people think he should have won the Oscar for this film. Oh, interesting. Uh, but- there's just this one anecdote. His wife, I, I don't know if he was married to the same woman, but his wife brought up when he went out to do uh, The Wild Bunch, apparently when he shot a different Peck and Paw film earlier, he contracted hepatitis, dysentery, and he like got really sick on set, but he loved Peck and Paw so much that the moment Peck and Paw said, we've got to do another location movie, he's like, I'm, he dropped one film to go and Jesus. shoot The uh, Wild Bunch. <laughs> Because he just, he loves Peckinpah. Yeah. Uh, but he has worked with all the great directors of the 60s. So, um, he's in a bunch of movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, but again, we don't have a lot of grounding in the big movies of the 60s. So, I don't really recognize any of the names. Mm. But he's good in this. I will say yeah. this. This is how stupid I am. Because James Taylor is here and then you told me about Dennis Wilson uh, off mic. I was like, wait, is Warren Oates like from Hall & Oates? Is that, are these all musicians? <laughs> I was like, no, absolutely is not. <laughs> no. I mean, he's pretty old yeah. in this film. Yeah. So he's like, this, that doesn't make sense, but is it? You're right. You are stupid. Uh, we talked about Lori Bird already. I don't know if you remember. Yes, she... But she was the wife of uh, Art Garfunkel who killed herself in his apartment. Yeah. And uh, it's so depressing because she struggled with depression. Her, her mom killed herself when she was 26 and Lori was three years old. And Lori killed herself when she was 26 in Art Garfunkel's apartment. Mm. She was only in three films. She was dating this director at this time and then met Art Garfunkel. Met Art Garfunkel after, I uh, can't say it, but the only three films she's in were this director. What's his name again? Uh, uh, I don't think that's true. Monty Hellman? Yeah, she was in two. Oh, two Monty Hellman she was in uh, 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 Annie Hall. Uh, Annie Hall, that's right. Yeah, that's my So three movies in the 70s and then nothing after that, of course. But And uh, yeah, so it's kind of sad. We've had a lot of weird and tragic deaths of the people we've talked They're about. They're all intertwined. Yeah, yeah. yeah that Hollywood thing. And just to get weirder, Dennis Wilson was part of the Beach Boys, which I'm learning too. I didn't recognize the name right away. Which I did not, I have to, I truly did not realize that. I guess, and except for Brian Wilson, I don't know anyone by look. I would not know what they yeah, look exactly. like. And Brian Wilson became sort of like yeah. the name that has the last of it. But anyways, Dennis was the middle brother. And apparently even when he was a kid, he's kind of the, he was a nut 
and he always get into trouble, they had an abusive father and he struggles with drinking and drug addiction. And one of the things about him is uh, because Brian Wilson was this introvert music nerd, it, what's written is that Dennis, although he liked music, pushed the opposite way and mm. said music's for fucking suckers. So he's learning music, but he didn't want to really be part or in the limelight of the Beach Boys. When they assemble the band, he's the drummer, which is another reason why you know, drummers kind of get the shaft, right. except for Phil Collins. Nobody actually knows who plays the drums in any band. Yeah. He's kind of crazy, man. Like, so he's already kind of aggressive and a nut, but he's also getting into like, maybe there's a problem with the 60s, a lot of very hard drugs. For him, it's LSD mm. and, um, and heroin, etc. But the LSD is important because um, as he's losing his grasp on reality and they're becoming more and more popular, at some point, He's living in Hollywood and he uh, crossed paths with Charlie Manson. Right. And they become very close friends, which is really fucked up. And he's the one who housed the original- Is that the house that they let him stay in? The... Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's okay. right. Yeah, yeah. And so, he's he's the guy. We talked about Charlie Manson a little bit earlier yeah. uh, this year, I think in Dirty Hair. I can't remember which episode. Dennis Wilson's the one that Charlie Manson starts threatening directly. So, apparently he gifted him, sent him a bullet. And when Dennis Wilson confronted him, he's like, this bullet, you have to look at every day to remind yourself how lucky are your family's still alive. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ. And Dennis Wilson, I mean, at this point, apparently Dennis Wilson has already lost his sanity to all these hallucinogens. So, people haven't really discovered how bad the Mansons are, but he was telling people that he had seen the Manson families killing, you know, like random strangers in the house and nobody really believed that that was happening until uh, the Tate murders. Dennis actually refused to testify against Charles Manson because he was scared that Manson would get out and murder him. So, there's a lot of weird stuff. In the end, he, this is how messed up Dennis Wilson is. He also has this tragic death. I can't remember how old he is. It's like early 80s. He had just been through a divorce three years earlier and apparently during that, you know, tumultuous time, he'd taken jewelry of his now ex-wife and thrown it into the ocean in this. And so, he drowned because three years later, he decided that he needed to go dive into this water to recover the jewels he had thrown away. And he blacked out because he was so drunk and he drowned to death doing something, trying to recover things he threw into the ocean three years ago. Mm-hmm. That's pretty fucked yeah, up. Yeah, he was, yeah, <laughs> that's tragic. I mean, again, we, we keep going back to like the swirling of emotions, but you have the Mansomers that were in like 69, 68, 69, which are swirling through Hollywood and, and, and the wider world. The Zodiac killers are, uh, killings are going on simultaneously, which they even mentioned in this movie, by the way. The, one of the girls in the back yeah, of the right. Zodiac killers, are you? So there's a lot of like serial killing, death, end of the summer of love, like all this kind of stuff. I think that's getting wrapped up into, into this movie too. This is an interesting sort of comment on our earlier or my earlier criticism of holding movies like this in such high regard. People don't talk a lot about how hard it was during this era, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we always talk uh, on the surface about Vietnam and, and the war on drugs and all this kind of stuff. Putting yourself in the seat of a filmmaker and artist whose daily newspaper print is about people being murdered ra- randomly or Dennis mm. uh, living with Charles Manson for six months and this harem and, and just taking part in that. It's pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. That's not a world necessarily people should want so badly to get back to. It wasn't just cars and open roads and free sex. It right. was, uh, there was a price to pay. I wonder too, if that's like, if you have that context, right? Like if you go into this movie like, oh yeah, that's Dennis Wilson. This is his backstory with Charles Manson. Then every like look, you're like, oh, that's him. Like thinking about like a, 
awful past and he's bringing so much to the forefront but as an outsider i'm like nope there's just there's nothing really engaging yeah that's there. that might be a thing with james taylor too you know you're watching this or the girl yeah. uh Lori. oh my god i forgot her name already bird you know if you know how tragic all their lives are particularly in this period you know maybe you get that uh hindsight appreciation mm-hmm. like how could they even sit in this car they're all suffering so much and then you read into, you know, their facial, what well, lack of facial expressions and lack of acting charisma and, you know, lack of dialogue and the lack of chemistry. I mean, I will say the one thing for the acting for the two guys, I mean, neither of them acted in a film after this. When they're together and they're both deadpan with each other, it actually kind of works a little bit in this film. Yeah, yeah. It's just as soon as they have to interact with anybody else in the film, it, Falls it just apart. turns into yeah. an amateur hour. Yeah. Well, this was written by Rudy Wurlitzer and Will Corey, directed by Monty Hellman. But this really all starts with producer Michael Loughlin, who, weirdly enough, passed away just two months ago. So he, that's Michael Loughlin, has this two-picture deal with CBS, and he gets them to buy Will Corey's already written script. And it's this film that's based on Will Corey's own experience of two men, one black and one white, who are driving cross country and are being pursued by a girl. We'll put a pin mm. in that and how this gets changed. <laughs> so Monty Hellman, on the other hand, who, by the way, just passed away in April. So two of the people involved in this movie like just passed away this year. He is one of the directors who was mentored by Roger Corman. Do you remember Roger Corman? Uh, briefly by name. Yeah, yeah. Not by context. Master so. of schlock B horror movies. Although he did Westerns and other stuff here too. Uh, did the original... A uh, little shop of horrors with Jack Nicholson. Right. Um. Anyways, he was the master of being like, "Give me like five dollars, and I'll make a movie that makes ten thousand. Like he was just great at being able to turn those movie, turn those movies out. And he was also the person to give a lot of people their starts. He was the first person to put Jack Nicholson into a movie, into a bunch of them, but also for directors to start to get into making films. So he was the one who gave Francis Ford Coppola, Peter Bogdanovich, and Jonathan Demme their starts. Which is why he also shows up in bit parts in some of their movies. So Roger Corman was in like The Godfather Part 2 as a Congress guy. He's in some other movies made by these other people here too. I think you're right when you mentioned that he doesn't really make anything else past this that will probably have much name recognition. I will say, as far as like reevaluations and stuff goes, there's two movies he makes in 68. uh, One called Ride in the Whirlwind and The Shooting. Again, two that star Jack Nicholson. They're starting to get kind of reappraised, specifically the last one. The shooting is starting to get this, like, another cult following of, like, actually, this is pretty good. People should look at this more, but I haven't seen either, so I don't know. I can't comment on either of those things. I found uh, Monty Hellman, I think, is more important because he was the second unit director on RoboCop. Thank you. Yes, he did, <laughs> he, he shot the action in RoboCop, which I find hilarious. Yeah, that's awesome. Also, um, also of the Hellman mayonnaise family. That's not true. Totally untrue. I have no <laughs> the idea. Empire. That's how he got in. It's just free mail for everyone. Free mail for everybody. That's actually how James Taylor <laughs> was paid in just mail. <laughs> Hellman was getting back from Italy after this failed movie project, and it kind of just happens to run into Michael Loughlin. Michael Loughlin suggests that Hellman take a look at this script called Tulane Blacktop, and Hellman likes it, but he thinks that the plot hasn't been fully realized. So he gives this ultimatum. He says, I'll direct this movie for you. But the script has to be rewritten. So that's agreed upon. And who he chooses is this novelist whose book he had just read. 
this guy named Rudy Wurlitzer. Wurlitzer had just written this book, I think in 69 is when it's, it's published, but it was called Nog. N-O-G, like eggnog. It's this psychedelic novel. And Dave, uh, sit back here for a second. Uh, Here are the first few sentences from Wikipedia describing the plot of Nog. Okay. I'm ready. Are there eggs in it? Well, the novel, which is disjointed and at times self-contradictory, is the first person account of an unnamed, unreliable narrator. He occasionally gives his name as Nog, but he also implies that Nog is a different person. At the start of the novel, he is living in a shack on a beach, meditating and rehearsing his memories. He is in possession of a fake octopus housed in the back of his truck, which he may have purchased from a man named Nog. That's where I stopped reading because I was like, I don't, I understand wow. any of this. I don't, I don't get what's, wow. what is even happening. It's like the 60s were full of uh, hallucinogens. <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> it almost sounds like, on? yeah, this, that, that, you get this person to write the movie that I just watched. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Of things that mm-hmm. don't really make uh, any sense whatsoever. So GTO is Nog, basically. That's correct. So he takes up, rewrites the screenplay in four weeks. Certain plot points are changed, but the biggest addition is that the girl is no longer pursuing them, and he adds in the Warren Oates character of GTO. So those are kind of his big additions here. Oh, GTO is not even in the original it's not story. In the original. It really is two guys, one black, one white being pursued by a girl down the highway, which again, I, I, don't, I don't want to be provisionist and everything. Kind of sounds like a better movie, but whatever. That's yeah. that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> um, at least you could do like the black and white and like commentary of the time in the early 70s and stuff like that, regardless. Well, even taking that out, you know, I think that would have been interesting going through the South mm-hmm. and how they would have to deal with even being allowed to race. But Correct. anyways. I dated a GTO back in college. It ended very badly. But as another quick little side tangent, you talked about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. He wrote that movie. Oh, right. Yeah, I think I read that here too. And if I remember correctly from our Duck You Sucker episode, I think is the movie that is a weird, like bears a very striking resemblance to Duck You Sucker in a, in a few different plot points. But uh, just things that have crossed over from stuff we've talked about. Yeah, it wasn't Rudolph. Or it was, actually, it was Monty Hellman who actually all uh, worked on a Fistful of Dollars. Right. As, uh, yeah, shooting some extra footage. I was like, there's a Sierra, uh, Sergio Leone yeah. uh, reference, but it was mm-hmm. uh, Hellman. So things are moving ahead. And right before they're meant to start shooting, CBS cancels the film. So they're kind of in this weird situation. Hellman shops it around to some different studios and this young executive at Universal decides to take a chance, gives them $850,000 and gives Hellman full creative control. That producer, I just want to do another little side tangent. That producer who does that is a guy named Ned Tannen, who has this remarkable skill through his entire career of seeing talent and making a lot of money. (laughs) Maybe not for this film, but after this, he greenlights and produces American Graffiti, Jaws, Smokey and the Bandit, The Deer Hunter. And then in the 80s, oh, wow. does Coal Miner's Daughter, The Blues Brothers, and E.T. Like, oh, wow. He knew how to like give he people what they it. wanted yeah. to. He then leaves Universal, produces 16 Candles in The Breakfast Club. Oh, my God. Moves to Paramount, does Crocodile Dundee, Fatal Attraction, Ghost, and Top Gun. Like this guy produced so much stuff that people are like iconography for like the last 50 years. A little fun fact, though, by the way, he was also kind of a raging asshole. So the <laughs> the character of Biff Tannen in the Back to the Future films is based on him. Oh, wow. So, there you go. Well, that's the price you pay for genius. That's right. Why they wanted non-actors in some of the roles, I don't know. Uh, James Taylor was cast 
only because uh, Monty Hellman was driving on the Sunset Strip and saw a billboard with James Taylor's face on it. I don't, that was why I was asking, was he a model or was he just like releasing a record? I'm guessing he was just releasing the record, saw his face and was like, you got to be in my movie, kid. Hellman also made the decision to not allow the actors to see the script. So he only gave them the pages they were going to shoot that day. That makes sense. No one knew what they were going to say or what they were going to do until they were about to shoot it. But what they did do, which is kind of an interesting innovation, they actually did drive Route 66. So they filmed this basically in sequence, which is also why they look more and more tired and disheveled as this movie goes along, because they were like banging this out in like 30 days Actually, or something yeah. like that. But now Hellman always liked to do the first cut of his films by himself and then hand it off to the editors. Uh, but he wanted to get like the shell of it, like how he wanted it. The rough cut of this movie was three and a half hours long. Awesome. <laughs> That's a lot of lost footage, eh? Yeah. Three and a well, half hours. This is what I also think. Not that I think it should have stayed three and a half hours, but I also wonder if weirdly, like the acting wouldn't be there, but I wonder if it would hold together better if there was like a two hour cut of this movie or like a two hour and 10 minute cut of this movie. Depending on what they cut yeah. out. Yeah. Anyways. I mean, there are a couple of shots that seem a little overlong. Yeah. Still. Anyways, he's contractually obligated to release something that is two hours or less. And so it's cut down to a brief one hour and 45 minutes. Yeah, you're losing almost two hours of footage. Maybe some of the races. <laughs> Could be. 17 more hi- hitchhikers. <laughs> it screens for critics. Oh, by the way, just talking about that, another gay hitchhiker that gets picked up. Same thing that mm-hmm. happens in Vanishing Point. And also because of this, I think this now officially on this podcast makes Harry Dean Stanton the most talked about actor. I think this is going to be four oh, films. Is that Harry that, Dean Stanton? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even recognize I him. I think that's four films we've talked about that he's appeared in. He's in the credits as H.D. Stanton, which I also find interesting i did not leave it on for the credits it screens for critics esquire calls it the film of the year they think it is the best film released in 1971 before it's shot and the filmmakers are like oh this is great this is like the perfect way to drive sales esquire's giving us this great recommendation we have this really like hot young thing as a as a music star who's the lead we're gonna make bank there's one problem though do you know what that problem is by any chance dave a movie's not good? Well, someone who would maybe agree with that, yeah, is the president of Universal, Lou Wasserman, who fucking hated this movie. He thought it was awful. Oh. So he gave it no promotion, ran no ads, oh. no trailers, and so it was just kind of dropped into theaters, but has inspired a bunch of people since then. So, yeah, it didn't really since make then. great box office because Universal did not do anything with it. They just like put it into a theater for like a couple of weeks and then pulled it. I don't know if I should save this for the wrap-up episode, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it's come up in this again. Should we appraise movies on what they were trying to do or how they turned out? Because the more we learn Mm -hmm. about the backstory, let's say, of this film, I can understand, in hindsight, people wanting to like this more. You know, if the the kids are not given the script, if they're actually driving Route 66, if some of the drag races are, you know, Mm -hmm. essentially documentarian and not set up, you know, does this hold greater value as a project and as a process rather than a film and you know maybe uh, it's more interesting half the time when you've dug up sort of the background of how these things were produced rather than the films themselves so Sweetback's same thing it's unwatchable but when you learn what Melvin Van Peebles trying to do you're like this is the one of the most important films ever made except it's awful and unwatchable (laughs) I think it's fine to have that juxtaposition and have that conversation though is this movie successful in what it is trying to do and I think that it's fine to have that conversation but then yeah there is that other conversation that has to come in 
that has to come in and be like, well, did I enjoy the experience though? And those can be at odds. Like this movie succeeds at what it is trying to do expertly, but I hated every second of it. And this is why I did not enjoy this movie sort of thing. And so you have to kind of play those like balancing scales. It also kind of reminds me of, um, this came into my uh, Twitter feed here this week. One of the last reviews in the last couple of years that Roger Ebert wrote was this movie called Fanboys, which I don't, from what I remember, is not a very oh, good movie. Is that about Star Wars? Yeah, exactly. And, but he's yeah, talking about Star yeah. Wars, like the, the issue with modern day fandom is that they aren't actually fans of the thing anymore. They're fans of being in the fandom. So that they can talk to you about mm. all the minutia and all the backstory and the fact yeah. that this plan is this thing. And as he writes in his review, is like, these are the most boring people to talk about because that's the only thing that they yeah. want to talk about. And they want right. to show you how smart they are for knowing all this stuff. That's right. And so when I, I always like to go through the backstory because I do find it interesting. But then I'm like, well, now it has to be a perk of five out of five film because look at all the stuff that they went through. You have to admit that the new Spider-Man was pretty great, though. Well, that's the thing, right? I don't know. Uh, when I, uh, for my now nearly defunct photography podcast, when I interviewed Donna Schwartz, who did the ethnographical study of photographers, mm -hmm. you know, in the 80s for her dissertation, she said the same thing about hobbyist uh, photographers. They obsess with camera. I mean, you can see that on YouTube. People are obsessed with cam technical camera uh, technology. Right. Right. And F-stops and fucking ISOs, but they don't talk about taking pictures. Right. And it's fascinating because, uh, yeah, movie fandom, music, all of it, people want to show off how much extra shit they know about it, but they never want to talk about the it itself. And so the timeless movie, maybe this is another thing, you know, I don't know anything about how Casablanca was shot. Right. And I, even if I read it, I don't really care. I, I just love the movie for watching the movie experience. 12 Angry Men, Star Wars, Godfather. I don't need to know, you know, which actor died while filming. Right, it's right, not right. that important to me. Doing this podcast, I think, yeah, I was thinking a lot because we're wrapping up soon about the films we've watched this year. And this is no different. This is a great example of it. There's such a, juxtaposition is a great word, but conflict really, a paradox mm -hmm. of, uh, yeah, throw away your books. I was miserable watching that thing. But the more I think about it and its importance in Japanese sure. culture, like presumably, I'm like, yeah, it must have been important. And it must have inspired so many artists to do weirder and weirder things. But I don't care because I hated the movie. So yeah, I, I, we had that conversation with our guest on Sweet Sweet Back, Mike Dennis. And absolutely, I am 100% aligned with like, yeah, we should preserve these films. They do. They are an important document of the history of the art form. But also, yeah, like, I'm never ever going to sit down and be like, I'm I'm in the mood for sweet, sweet back tonight. I'm going to watch that movie <laughs> from start to finish. But I'm also the same with this one. It's like this one isn't trying for as much. And so I don't think it can fail as hard as maybe what a sweet, sweet back can do. But it's like, yeah, I'm never going to be on a Saturday night and like, ooh, too lame blacktop. I'm going to put this on the old <laughs> Blu-ray player and, and watch James Taylor not emote. Now, that being said, Movies. we've been ragging on this. Was there anything that you found did work or brighten up the film as you were watching it. There is always some resonance with nomadic road movies because like you brought up, I mean, there's no payoff, but the idea of this slow race uh, of them building some sort of contested camaraderie. I liked when Laurie Bird shows up at the beginning that mm -hmm. she just throws her shit in their car and they're just like, oh yeah, all right, let's all right. let's move on. I th I thought that was a fascinating uh, insight or or picture into like the yep. end of the again the end of the hippie movement getting butt up with you know now it's the car driving thing we're gonna see in American Graffiti etc. But and then after that I, I don't know like it's so weird like 
him going to a bar randomly, getting drunk, seeing the guy beat in a drag race and coming home and having to listen to the mechanic have sex with the girl. You know, why is that? That stuff is strange. So, whatever moments are pleasant, (laughs) they're always kind of pulled apart. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Well, he he wanted to have sex with her and so he's upset that his friend is having sex with her. Oh, is that that how that was working? Uh, I I guess in the end that plays out. Warren Oates is good. It's hard to, because he stands out so much, it's hard for him to fit in or like everything to fit together. But some of those scenes as it's building up and he keeps telling different stories and he's losing his mind. I mean, he's he's good in it, Mm -hmm. but it's hard also to shoehorn that type of character to connect with these two kids that all they live for is tuning the stupid beater they built. In in a way, maybe it's not, not this dark, but it would be like watching He's All That again. And then like Meryl Streep comes in and is actually giving a great performance. Like what is happening in this movie? Why is this huge disconnect between? Anthony Hopkins is the dad. Yeah. And you're just like, I, I don't know. There's something I don't believe about. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I can't say enough about Warren Oates. I think he is like the stand of this film. And maybe it is because he's just standing beside two people that are not great actors. Blocks so like he just wood. really stands yeah. out as being, oh, you're actually trying and doing good stuff. Um, I do think some of the photography is pretty good here too. Like we mentioned on sure. the Unvanishing Point, I thought that that was captured so well and they had those innovations of like literally attaching cameras to the back of cars. Nothing quite so as innovative as that happens, I don't think in this movie, but it is the bare minimum, but like photographed well, we can see things, some, some shots underlit, but I also like just the almost documentary feel of going through what Route 66 would have looked like at that time, which is different now because it's mostly freeways. You're not actually going through like those back roads anymore. Yeah, I mean, learning again with this uh, prehistory, the fact that they shot it actually driving this route and Mm. it's not either mimicked sets or somewhere, uh, Mm. you know, where they're losing that sense of reality. It does have a great lived-in feel. So that means, you know, when it's pouring rain, that is not a machine pouring water on that car. And... uh, you don't get that green screen feel or whatever they were. It wasn't green screen at the time. We, we discussed that. Yeah, yeah. Blue screen. It doesn't matter. But or like in the, uh, you know, in the 30s or 40s where it's almost like someone's holding a cardboard cutout behind a window. <laughs> you right. know, when they're in the car and they're driving around, maybe they do the same thing. I don't know. Maybe they rigged a camera up to this car to this car because there's a couple of interior shots while they're driving that we take for granted today. But must have been so difficult to shoot because movie cameras at the time probably you know weighed 400 pounds, probably weighed more than that car. So um, it is interesting in that sense. What is up with hitchhiking homosexuals? Two movies in a row. That is what. That's a subplot. I joked in these about movies. the walkabout. I don't know. Kind of half joking aside, particularly in this era, there has to be a transient nature to people who are abandoned, right? right? I mean, if you're not allowed to exist in a small town, or you've been ousted, or you need to get from space to space, I mean, there is that nice stereotype. What is it? Uh, often it's portrayed with these truck stops and right, you know yeah, yeah. Well, these kind of uh, orgies and people that are having sex with each other, that there's something about these road, this road culture that this thing is fairly more common. So I don't know. I guess what I really like about that scene, Harry Dean Stanton being the, the gay guy in that movie and her, his hand slowly going over to Warren Oates' lap. What I appreciate is like Warren's like, I, I'm not into that. I'm not into that thing. But he still wants to drive the guy. Like he still is like, I still want to have a conversation yeah. with you, which I find like an interesting character trait is like, yeah, I'm not in that buddy, but let's keep going here. Which is also where it's like uh, contrasted with that other hitchhiker that he picks up. who's like, right. Get me out. I do not want to talk to you for the next two hours. You're talking way too much to me. Yeah. I like to that. Um, I guess Harry Dean Stanton, it's per- that scene is portrayed very gently. It, like it's so stupid in Vanishing Point where they're 
pantomimed yeah. into these like Weird. total cartoon characters and they're like hold up artists. It's just so stupid. But this one, I mean, he genuinely looks like a lonely guy who's, you know, just thought and miscontextualized what the pickup was. And then he begs to not be thrown out in a torrential rain. And this guy who you think is going to be a serial killer, Warren Oates, turns out to just kind of be a nut, but he's like a nice nut. So he actually takes him to the next town. Well, I think that's the thing too. Like he's lonely too. I think he really just wants company yeah. for, <laughs> and he's trying to find it. So the sort of humanist aspects are, are in this film. I mean, I don't know why I don't appreciate them more. Uh, you know, when you pull this thing apart, there are really, like all the hitchhiking scenes are great because you get like that scene with the broken old lady and the young girl mm -hmm. and they've lost the, the parents. I mean, that's a pretty poignant three minutes right. that you get this little snapshot into middle America. But uh, yeah, like that could have been a much more interesting film or the inverse where it's just a racing movie. Like- 70s Fast and the Furious, minus the theft and spies and all that shit, but like a drag racing movie. This tried too much. I yeah, don't know. like I mean, it's weird. The, it's I, I always want to be careful here because I we, we tend to. Well, this is how we would change this movie, and this is what would make the movie a better movie. <laughs> all I can say then is that this is why I found all those scenes with War Notes so fascinating. It's like, and why I wanted mm -hmm. more of them. It's like I would watch the movie that was listless, that kind of meandered itself. That didn't even have like a strong resolution. It was him just going on like these weird three minute long journeys and forays yeah, into like American certain, yeah. life. Like that was yeah. what was interesting to me. And everything else was like, I don't care. That would make such a great little novel, right? You know, just a weird, crazy guy going through every state in America or whatever this right. highway is and getting these little snapshots of uh, crazy people. I think every person is crazy. The fact that everybody poops is disgusting. That culture is dying out. I mean, I don't know. Maybe people still have checked. I remember I went to school with this guy who hitchhiked across Canada. Right. So people still do it, but he is white male and he kind of looks like Wayne Gretzky. So, yeah. you know, he, when he came back, he's like, oh, we should go together. I'm like, nobody's picking me up, dude. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> I will be dead by Kingston is what will happen. <laughs> yes. So, uh, you know, people still out there and that's a thing. So maybe my friend, uh, Jordy would really like this film. Maybe. Uh, it's possible. I don't know if it was meant to be funny or not, but for some reason it really cracked me up again. I don't mean the pun where, where it's like, it's like a hard boiled egg. Like you just carry hard boiled yeah. eggs. I was like, absolutely not. I'm not going to take this hard boiled egg from you. Uh, well, sharing a flask after yeah. with all that egg. I mean, think about the backwash. It's just, I know, I know that's a stupid thought, but I was watching that scene. I'm like, did he just give the other guy a bottle while he's chewing on an egg? I mean, that's not, it's just so gross. I've also had to pee outside <laughs> multiple times. So that's felt pretty real when they had to go and couldn't get into the washroom. So you just pee outside. Yeah. I thought it was wild. There's one scene where James Taylor gets out and his hair is all like long and bedraggled. He is wearing a green shirt and kind of like these brown pants. I'm like, you look like Shaggy. He like, was like the spitting image <laughs> of Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. I'm like, this is so oh weird my God. to watch. I don't know when Scooby-Doo started, so I have no idea what came first, but he looks like Shaggy. I think before that. Yeah, there's some some really neat shots. I did like when they split up into the cars and they're trying to get to the next town as the day's breaking. Mm -hmm. There's a beautiful shot of the sunrise. And, yeah. You know, things like that. It's uh, it's pretty neat. There's uh, there's an art underneath it. I also said, uh, good for her for leaving with that guy on the bike. I was like, yeah, you don't need any of this drama. Just, just leave. <laughs> yeah, I mean, did you think 
you know, I mean, if we're going to get a little bit into representational interpretations, I mean, what, you know, what is this movie really about? Is she the end of the hippie era maybe? Or like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what was going on in like, the end. I, yeah. If you're going to get like super like philosophical or anything about it, or if I want to put my English major hat on, like that's kind of what it feels like is at the very end. This is really just the leaving of everything. So the girl is gone. The friend is gone. You're going to go to this drag race and probably lose your car at the end of the day. It's it's all kind of disappearing from 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 him, but yeah, yeah. Again, whether that resonates with anyone in a 2021 context, I don't know. I just think both of the road movies we've watched this year have been better representations. Yeah, I don't know. The more you talk about it and speaks to more people, I just I don't know. Yeah, there's something about it that I just want to. I just kind of want to know what it's about. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe you just want someone. <laughs> I would to come like out someone to you. sit down and be like, "Oh, this is what this is." I'm like, "Oh yeah," and then the puzzle will come together. What the hard thing for me is, is that with some of the other cult classics we've talked about, like with Vanishing Point, with Sweet Sweet Back, even with Throw Away Your Books, or I'm trying to think of another one. I know there's another one we watched this year. Like fundamentally, even if I don't enjoy those movies, I can still like, like I, I get it. Like I, I, I can, I can see why someone would like it, appreciate it, see how it changed things. This one, I honestly am struggling to understand why <laughs> the why is is eluding right. me honestly it's like i don't really why is this the movie that people are like reevaluating and 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 feeling i guess a closer connection with because i just don't i fundamentally don't understand why it's this one out of some of the other ones we watched this year people like cars and long-haired guys it's not that hard i think it's this misplaced nostalgia mm. and uh, i saw a tweet and i gotta get off twitter but it was an interesting one because we've brought this up this problem of uh, reappraisal of communism but uh, this woman it was a forward i don't know if you forwarded it but because i don't follow that many people but it was something along the lines of modern people who are all yelling about trying to be communists are just people that uh, wish they had more money right <laughs> and so i mean that's a paraphrase it was, it was worded much more eloquently than that but this is the kind of movie i think if i looked at it just from my topical perspective that anybody that wants to like this movie just misses the idea that they could just get into a car with their buddy and just live penny by penny mile by mile and everything is like um, not nihilistic whatever it's it's just okay everything's mm-hmm. fine you just need a car a motel and you can make your money if you can race your car there's this uh, poetic nature of being free you know american freedom and i i think it's not only inaccessible. I think it's a lie. There's a reason why most road movies end in tragedy. They're they're meant to explain that this is not the correct way to live your life. This movie too. This is not a movie I think that people should watch and be like, I wish I I wish I was the driver. I wish I was I could be the mechanic. I think you should I could be watching this movie. Eggs. Yeah. I could pee on buildings. Yeah. I could do this. <laughs> Meet a random dude and yeah. share whiskey in a flask and help him fix his catalytic converter. What did they, is a spark? Who cares? I don't know. They, they had to fix his car. So, can, you know, is that supposed to be nice or is it just insane? You know, that people live like this. It's just weird. So I think people like that. Mm-hmm. Seems like a hard life, Kyle. I don't want it. It's a hard knock life out there. That's for sure. We're done here. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap this up. So let's get into critics choice here. Roger Ebert. This is, of course, the part of the show where we take critics, hopefully, of the contemporary time and see what they were thinking. Unfortunately, it's going to be a bit of half and half this week. Uh, Roger Ebert, at the time, did write a review on this movie. Uh, He was positive on it, gave it three out of four stars, and he says, 
What I liked about Tulane Blacktop was the sense of life that occasionally sneaked through, particularly in the character of GTO. Warren notes, he is the only character who is fully occupied with being himself rather than the instrument of a metaphor, and so we get the sense we've met somebody. Kind of the same thing, is like, because the other, the other two people are metaphors, for like the hippie movement or for society or however you want to look at it. War Notes was a breath of fresh air. The other person, because Pauline Kale did not write a review of this movie, we're going to do Paul D. Zimmerman from Newsweek. Hellman's heroes remain insulated from us by their own failures to feel. We are part of the world they pass through invisibly, and so they remain as foreign and opaque as ever. He did not like the movie, by the way. <laughs> I was like, I'm trying to decode that. Is that a compliment? No, he, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's saying exactly the same thing we're saying here. It's like, I couldn't lock into the main characters at all because they're just like blank based slates that don't seem to be feeling or yeah. doing anything. Well, I guess it does bring us here. We're going to rate it ourselves here, of course. But before we do, we do have to ask the question we always ask. Does this hold up? And is it still culturally relevant? What do you say, Dave? Yeah, no and no. I'm sure. Yeah. For me, no and no. So loquacious of you, Dave. I, uh. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no and no too. I'll be bold here this week. I definitely don't think it holds up. <laughs> I honestly don't see how it's super culturally relevant. However, I say that mm. and look at all this stuff. Caveat. So I said at the beginning, this does inspire the organizer of the actual cannonball run, Brock Yates. This uh, was not available for many years, basically due to some of the music rights, which is actually another kind of interesting thing. All of the other road movies like Easy Rider, Vanishing Point are very well known for their soundtracks. And this one... Not so much. I didn't even know there was music in it. Well, there's stuff from The Doors actually in it, Dave. So, oh, cool. uh, I like The Doors. They had to. I think I was yawning too much. (laughs) Maybe. Like, honestly, did you even notice there? When when was their music? They're they're tuning the the car radio occasionally, but no, I agree. I agree that the music is not at the forefront of this, but they did go after they did this public showing and got a bunch of signatures to say that Universal should release this, including one of those signatures being from Werner Herzog. Uh, Universal was able to approach the surviving members of the band and they signed off on it so they could even get a DVD release. It is part of the Criterion Collection. In 2012, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And here's the big news I'm dropping on you, Dave. There is a remake currently in production starring Pitbull and Blake Shelton. So they're going to go back to like the black and white. Is that real or are you just joking? They, all the cast, is, like if you go into IMDb, you can see it. All the cast is there. The writer is there. This doesn't seem to be a director named yet. So I guess as soon as they get the director. Pitbull and Blake Shelton, like from The Voice? No, Blake Sheldon. I know this gets confusing. Not Blake Shelton, Blake Sheldon. Oh, who's Blake Sheldon? I don't Sheldon? know. Some pretty boy actor guy I don't really recognize. Oh, like but, a young guy? Mm. Okay. And Pitbull, and Pitbull. like the old uh, yeah. 90s... Uh, tech rapper or whatever that's you right. want to call him yeah so they're getting back yeah. to like this yeah. club club guy yeah that's right the latino guy he's yeah with the, he always wears sunglasses yeah, i actually think he's puerto videos. rican if i'm not mistaken um good good for or, him or cuban anyways uh yeah going with that like white non-white situation of the original text by the sounds of it why do you think there are no original scripts anymore kyle <laughs> I mean, it's not a no, but why do you think we've relied so much on remaking old material? Is there that much of a dearth of creative writing or is it production studios we that just don't want to so gamble so do not stuff? have the time for me to get into this with you, Dave, because I actually have a lot of opinions on this. I think the biggest answer to your question, other than being be flipping and be like, they've, Hollywood has always remade stuff from the past. The real answer is that when you have budgets now that exceed $100 million, 
you have to have at least Scheme game recognition to. or be like we have to have people know what they are getting into and show you what the ending's going to be first. so that people don't get upset. Uh, that's one thing I'll say about 1971 even though I've been upset most of the time is uh when you lose that mm-hmm. and you make it about the films first they whether we like them or not all of these films have been impactful some way mm-hmm. and uh we are missing that <laughs> right now. Let's burn it all down Dave. Let's Mute. burn it all down. Music's the same thing, man. I, I regret going to Apple Music, not to make it too personal because I miss my Spotify. Mm-hmm. Everything that it's telling me to listen to is a brand recognition release. Yeah. It has nothing to do about music at all. So you're saying you're not in on the Taylor Swift re-release. <laughs> it's like Taylor Swift, Adele, and uh, mm-hmm. some rapper I've never heard of that's making billions of dollars because they're famous on TV or something. I, I don't want to listen... To music that Apple tells me is good, right? I'd like I to mean, watch. Adele is pretty good, I but like. I, 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 I get what your point is. Um, yeah, I like Adele. Come on. Come on. Who listens to albums anymore, Kyle? That's another thing. Other than you. That's another thing. Yeah. I always forget that both of you are 65 years old. Well, that is what Dave and I thought about the movie, the world, about Adele, apparently. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> you can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave at VSTheMachine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KatieVSTM. And if you want to uh, see us over on YouTube, you can search us up over there where we do trailer reactions and uh, mini reviews of the films we talk about each week. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So Dave, out of five, what would you give Tulane Blacktop? I think a two. And the only reason I'm hesitating is, again, when you talk about all this backstory, uh-huh. you know, that the actors weren't even allowed to see the script. It makes me feel softer about it, but I, I'll stay with a two. It's not a terrible movie. Like, I'm not upset we watched it. I right, just, right, right. I was just bored. So. Well, I'm, I'm pretty negative too. Um, the, the time with those things I liked. Like the war notes, like some of the shots, even some of the scenes were good. But overall, I also was not a huge fan of how this kind of all wrapped up and the non-actors in, in the main roles. So I'm giving it a 2.5, Dave. A 2.5. So we're pretty close. Middling. Middling. It is going to average to 2.25. Of course, we'll be, we'll be rounding that down to 2 on our letterbox list. However, that uh, ties with five other movies dave shit. which is like the the section of the list we keep going back to weirdly enough in the last few weeks so how, how would you put this into this nicholas and alexandra diamonds are forever willard let's scare jessica to death bed knobs and broomsticks i'll probably put it above jessica okay and then what was above what were the willard three is right above that? jessica and- diamonds are yeah. forever nicholas and alexandra yeah i'll probably put it there i don't know I actually didn't mind Willard. I think it's I low because you hated it. Like you're scared of rats. I mean, it's not a good movie either, but at least it has uh, sort of uh, a big climax. Yeah. Nicholas and Alexandra. Jesus. I don't know. I was, was, I was going to say, boring. let's put it above Willard, but you make a good point in saying at the very least, what Willard is trying to do is I think communicated better than what in, yeah. it's trying to do. <laughs> so I, I, let's do that. Let's put it underneath Willard and above Let's Scare Jessica to Death. So one second here. Enter our list then at the number 32 position is Tulane Blacktop. Dave, I mean, we're almost back to earth. I can't even imagine what movie we're going to watch 
uh, next to. So let's me just push this button here. Oh, we're not even talking about a movie next week, Dave. It, it, the machine has told me that next week is our wrap up episode. We did it. So we're going to be it. talking about we're back. an overview of 1971, thoughts and feelings. We might even adjust some ratings here and there. I guess maybe we'll even find out what year we're going to be covering next as this machine will not stop giving us movies to talk about. Can I can I go visit my family? Uh, I don't know about that. We'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll find out next week. Oh, man. The price we pay to save the world. That's right. Steep. Oh, wait. What, what plot lines are we leaving behind? Is there someone still following us? Do we have a diamond? What, what happened to that weird... Uh, Keep me abreast of the story. Where, where are we? Uh, oh, oh, God! The, 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 the film is burning up in the in the projector, Dave. I don't know. I, it's just burning up in the projector. Death. Everything ends in death.